Hello. Hey, there he is. Oh, that works. What happened, Dan? Oh, I don't know. I'm not I'm not a technology guy anymore. Technology. <laughs> How are you? We tried to talk to each other three times and rebooted and, yeah. and now we're here. Well, we both rebooted. Well, we did. I rebooted full, twice. Full on double reboot. Yeah. Uh, I'm good. I'm here in, uh, in Venice, California, and, uh, one of the sounds, uh, you may hear is someone with a leaf blower. Okay. This is, this happens in Venice. Yeah. Who is, um, he's performing the following service. He is blowing some dry grass clippings around a very small yard. Uh, the yard could be raked in about two and a half minutes. All right, but they're using the the blower. Yeah. Instead, he's got a five horsepower gas-powered leaf blower, and he's walking around blowing the the grass uh, into the same sort of general pile that you would make if you raked it. Uh, but it's taking about fifteen minutes to do fifteen to forty minutes, I estimate to do that job with a leaf blower, which is a time-saving device. I mean, you, you want to use machinery whenever possible. That's what I found. Anytime really, have you ever, you, you do yard work at your house? Like, does it need oh. it? Oh, do I do yard work? Well, tell me about that. What, what's oh, involved in, in maintaining your home? Well, Dan, I have a larger uh, piece of property. Not larger by comparison to like what people have in Wyoming, but within the Seattle city limits, I have about a third of an acre, which is a large lot. And uh, when I moved in, I proceeded immediately to plant a lot of bushes, uh, flowering bushes and enjoyable bushes, rhododendrons and camellias and purises mm-hmm. and botinias and Lots and lots of different sort of interesting bush work uh, that uh, immediately needed maintenance. And then I planted a birch garden with lots of little Japanese maples and bippity boopity boop and California oranges mm. and so forth. Not orange fruit, but like. So it's almost like you're, a, you're like a, a produce gardener in a way. If the produce is bushes. <laughs> But they yield, do they not (laughs) yield any fruit? No. Oh, well, I do have three fruit trees that are mostly pests in the sense that the thing about a fruit tree is that all the fruit is ripe at the same moment. And then you have ripe fruit for, like in the case of my cherry tree, you have ripe fruit for about three and a half days. After which the fruit, you know, immediately is overripe. And then, and I have a giant fruit tree. It's the size of a house or a giant cherry tree. And so the fruit then, then it goes from two, just underripe. So it's, it's fine, but it's not like jamming and then perfectly ripe for two to three days. Right. And then it's just, the tree is full of birds and raccoons. The tree is shedding rotting fruit for a month and a half like the the awful thing about grocery stores now is that they import fruit from chile all year round and it costs 
it doesn't cost us anything because of the economics of scale, but it costs the world all the pollution right. and garbage that results from schlepping fruit all around the world, all the hidden costs that we don't pay. But the problem with growing your own food is that it's ripe for two days. And unless you can it, <laughs> it's like no longer, you know, like if I bring 25 giant bowls of cherries into the house, it's just like a week later, I just have fruit flies, you know, there, and the cherries aren't, aren't a thing that you like, Hmm, I'm going to fill my freezer with frozen cherries. And then the apple tree is kind of the same. And the, in order to really make the apples good, you have to spray in the dead of winter for the little, you're spraying for worms because apples naturally are full of worms. All right. Little worms, big worms, Uh, name it. No. And so, so you either sit with every apple that you pick off the tree with a paring knife and cut every portion of the apple that has a worm in it off or you're like old timey farm person and you just eat the worms or, <laughs> you know, you're like, I mean, that's, those are the only two options, right? Cause I'm not, I don't just throw the apples down the street until all the apples are junk. And then I do throw them down the street. It's one of the games that I play. I take an apple and I throw it as far as I can down the street. And we then have- in the, <laughs> there's one more fruit tree. In the backyard, I have a pear tree, yeah. which is about 100 years old. And the pears are only ripe for about, are only perfectly ripe for about four hours. But the nice thing about pears is you can bring an unripe pear into your home and it will ripen. But that, again, gives you, what, about an eight-day window where you can have the pears around before they're, they are fruit fly. Um producers fruit flies spontaneously generate now i used to have an orange tree in my backyard in the first house that i owned in florida and the oranges that it made were t- were terrible uh-huh. yeah like sour and mealy yeah they just like you would try it you couldn't they weren't the kind of oranges i think you that you would want to eat they were more for juicing, I guess, but they, the juice they produced was not good either. And my neighbor was always saying, oh, that's because, you know, you got to, you got to fertilize it and you got to do all these different things to it. And it, otherwise, it, but he's like, oh, but it's too late for yours. Yeah. And I said, why? He's like, well, yours, you know, hasn't been taken care of for, for years. And right. that's why it's in this pathetic state that it's in. And so all it ever did was drop oranges uh, and it dropped a lot of oranges and it, those oranges just attracted possums and raccoons so we always yeah. had possums and raccoons in our backyard eating the oranges and then pooping back in there yeah and they're filling it up with poop the backyard and that was not i guess the kind of fertilization that the orange tree wanted to make better fruit no you screwed that help. orange tree up no yeah. it went back it's a feral it's feral now it's become <laughs> one of those one of those african ur dogs right. those like yeah. tall tall blonde dogs yeah that all dogs will revert to if you stop like maliciously breeding them. Yes, I was walking the other day uh, in my neighborhood. I was looking around and I was noticing how so many of the yards are really like nicely manicured. And I was thinking it, if human civilization were to just be completely wiped off the planet, not not in a way that destroyed the planet, but just if all human beings were instantaneously gone, like how long would it take 
for the earth to completely reclaim, you know, all of this. And I was thinking about the dogs and like, how, how long would it take all dogs to eventually go back into their primordial dog form again? I think it's like three or four generations. Like That's it? And like, they, I think it happens so fast. I don't just mean like Pharaoh, like running around in the no, woods, I mean, Feral. I mean like to, visually, like physically, like if you took, like there would be no more Chihuahua and no more Great Dane. There would just be the one pure dog. Again. Yeah, the 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 that, that tawny covered tawny covered long legged yeah. long tailed right. like half look half sort of hyena looking big eared right. yellow Ethiopian dog yeah is what all dogs become if you just let them breed amongst themselves for a very very short time. I mean, I think dogs will revert to that. Yeah, in in a few generations, and in my in, in the case of my house, it would be reclaimed. By the bushes I planted, uh, I mean, it, it every season threatens to do that. So I'm out there all the time. I have my little clippers. I have my uh, big clippers. You I have use my power lawnmower. tools at all? Lawnmower. Yeah. Um, I don't use power hedge trimmer, and I don't use, I'm not like somebody that edges. Um, that's like a, a kind of a quality of person. Are you the kind of man who edges? No, that ain't me, dog. Yeah, do you edge? I mean, I, 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 I don't sit and judge somebody that edges, but I'm not. I don't edge. Um, and then I do considerable raking. I have a few rakes. I have some busted ass rakes that I still use, and then I have some good rakes. And I'm out there raking all the time. I have a catalpa tree, and the leaves of a catalpa tree are about the size of what we used to call a medium pizza now because of pizza escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what you would call a large pizza or I mean, it's not the pizzas haven't escalated the aggressive sizing of pizzas. There didn't used to be extra large pizzas. Do you remember that? Uh, the small, medium. And large. Yeah. there. Well, I'm trying to remember a time there wasn't an extra large. When I worked at the pizza place, there was like they had introduced a medium. That was a new thing at oh, the time. Y- you had small, large, and extra large? No, we just had small and large. Oh, oh, right. Right, right, right. Yeah, small and large. Do you want a small one or do you want a large one? And most people, it was always large. And then they came out with this medium pizza, <laughs> and it was two medium pizzas with two toppings for eleven ninety nine delivered to your house in 30 minutes or less, or it's free. Did, did you work at Little Caesars? Domino's. Oh, a Domino's. Yeah. Two medium pizzas was a Domino's uh, uh, option. Well, I th- it was at the time, it was a special deal, but it was a very, very popular deal. And it was definitely, I think, to compete with the uh, Little Caesars Pizza Pizza. Pizza Pizza. Which, you know, sometimes it was willing, worth it to just drive over there and get it because you got the two pizzas. It was so cheap. It was so much cheaper. Literally, Pizza Pizza was their slogan. That's yes. two pizzas. Yeah. That was their thing. So, it was always two. The first time I saw an extra large pizza, I thought, like on a menu... Yeah, I thought, wow, they've finally done it. This is what I've always wanted mm-hmm. was a pizza that was just a little bit bigger than a large because I'm a pizza glutton. And when a large pizza, I think it's, shows I think it's pronounced gluten, a pizza gluten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I uh, when a pizza arrives, I immediately begin to uh, hoard it. Right. Like if you take a slice of pizza even if I have six slices of pizza, I start to covet your slice of oh, pizza. Yeah, sure. Because what the hell are you doing eating my pizza? Like it's it's one of the few times that I turn into a lion on the savannah. 
and everyone else that's approaching my pizza is a hyena. Mm-hmm. Right? The, it's the not like a form dog. That's right. It's not like I'm I'm a lion with a bunch of other lions eating a wildebeest or wildebeest, as they say in South Africa. Certain portions. That's how they say that. Wildebeest. Um, and I know we have some South African listeners that are going to correct me and say, no, it's wildebeest. Uh-huh. But, uh, but so I become very, very jealous about my pepperoni pizza. But it's never like if it's two people sitting around. You're not going to order two large pizzas. So anyway, I saw extra large. and I thought, this is perfect. The extra will be the portion that the other person eats. And then there will be still a large pizza. <laughs> but when, I, when the large pizza arrived, or extra large pizza arrived, it was not extra large. It was just a large pizza. It was what we used to call a large pizza. Now it was an extra large pizza. And they had introduced some intermediary slightly smaller pizza or something right i mean if you could have made an extra large pizza you would have done it already this was the pizza box wasn't that much bigger see now you're making me think that we didn't even that we didn't even have a medium until that point yeah i don't know what you do with an extra large though that seems well you'd invite other people over i mean you'd allow your sister to have a slice one which was, yeah, right, which was about what I was capable of. My sister's going to have a slice, then, okay, get they, your slice. Do they have good pizza, though, up there? In Anchorage? Yeah, yeah, or even in Seattle. Like, can you get good pizza there? I know you've had pizza probably in every every state of the Union. I've had a lot of pizza. Yeah. I feel like... In Anchorage, there was a, there's a, there is still a pizza parlor called Sorrento's Pizza on Fireweed Lane. And Fireweed Lane has never been, it's never been Anchorage's nicest street. Right. Right. It's not like a boulevard. Fireweed Lane is, is a street that you use. It's a, it's a street that you use. And when I was a kid, it had like pawn shops and Army Navy surplus and, Little di- little hamburger diner type places and lots of little sort of shite houses. And there was a store that would make trophies and a couple of places that sold guns, but they were generally pawn shops too. Dry cleaners. You know what I'm saying? It's like that kind of street. And I lived right off of that street. So I knew every shop. Well, the last time I went to, Oh, also the foreign legion was on it. Uh, I used to walk home down Fireweed Lane every day, um, and also the Fireweed Theater, which was when I was a kid a drive-in theater that also had like three giant theaters associated with it—movie theaters that would seat eight hundred people—and then the drive-in closed, and then the theaters got chopped up into like ten little multiplex theaters, and then they just recently—well, they closed it down, and then they tore it down. If that gives you an indication yeah, of how, of how Fire felt Lane about is doing. Yeah, like Fireweed Lane has become so down market that they can't even support a movie theater. So I drove down Fireweed and I was like, oh no, Fireweed is really on the skids. And you would think Anchorage is booming. Everywhere's booming. How did Fireweed, because sort of midtown street to, that's there to be used, how did it become so just like blown out 
But the one thing that's still there that you can count on is Sorrento's Pizzeria. Sorrento's. Sorrento's Pizzeria, which was the pizza parlor that I, it was the place that introduced me. Well, no, that's not true. The place that introduced me to great pizza was Pizza Haven, which was a Seattle chain, which is gone. And Pizza Haven had that slightly sugary sauce that did not taste like fresh tomatoes because if you want fresh tomatoes, go eat a tomato. You're having pizza, which should have like uh, expressive flavors that aren't natural, that are, that are changed. You don't think they should be natural? No, they should be changed by the hands of man. You know, like natural, go out and lay in the grass and rub your face in a tomato and put some basil up your nose or whatever. That means like you can have natural anytime. The pizza involved all this labor, this chopping and mixing and cooking. It should come out the other side tasting like nothing that you could find in nature because that's the principle of making food. You don't want to taste the nature in it. There's plenty of nature. Make the, you know, I don't mean processed food like full of xanthan gum. I mean processed by the hands of a, of a cook. Make it into something else. So Pizza Haven had this pizza that was like, it just felt like it was made for kids. It was like candy pizza. <laughs> and, and that was the thing that made me go, Pizza is the greatest food. And there was a place called Pizza and Pipes here, which, you know, in that, in that, in the early seventies, right, they were tearing down all the great vaudeville houses around the United States, everywhere. And there were all these orphan pipe organs that had been installed in these buildings back in the era of silent film, really like not church pipe organs, but pipe organs meant to, score uh, Harold Lloyd movies and, and big theaters like early movie theaters would have a pipe organist uh, in the employ of the theater who would score the film for all the dramatic moments. And so all they were tearing these theaters down because they needed to build um, what were they building then? They were just building parking lots in the seventies, but then later on they became uh Lowe's Lowe's <laughs> and so there were these pipe organs and a lot of them I think just ended up in landfills but there were some there were probably some hippies in overalls in 1970 who you know they had little round grandma glasses and they were pipe organ preservationists pipe organ they recognized that these pipe organs were no one was going to build a modern pipe organ we have to preserve these old Wurlitzers. How big were these things? Oh my God. They were enormous, like right? Room, because like the, the size of a room oh, bigger because the pipes, the big pipes were three stories tall. They were like built into the theaters. The entire front wall of the theater like would a be a church the pipe. thing. Yeah. But, but even bigger in some cases and the, you know, the control surface, the, the Wurlitzer keyboard itself had like six different layers of keys and they wrapped all around you and the pipe organ didn't just make organ sounds. It also had whistles and bell sound effects. 
clank, 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 bing, woo, woo, you know, train whistles and so forth. Because <laughs> they were they were animating these old films. So a few of these pipe organs have survived to the modern day because as they were tearing down the the um, like the the ancient theater, which was really only a hundred years old or less when they were tearing down the 70 year old theater that should by all rights live for a thousand years because they were the temples of their time. Why we still have the pyramids, but we don't have a giant pipe organ in every neighborhood. I have no idea because I don't run the world, but a few of these pipe organs were preserved and some of them were installed in pizza parlors. That's crazy. Pizza. I had no idea. Is this a Seattle specific thing or is this a, a national movement that happened? Well, I think every, every place that it ha- happened required that there be a hippie pipe organ preservationist in overalls who took it upon <laughs> him or herself to do this noble work. Um, and pizza parlors were where they landed because in the seventies, the fashion for pizza parlors was, and I'm sure you remember this, ye oldie pizza parlor, right? Like the, the waiters and waitresses all wore arm garters. Right. And they, and they had the, would, would this have been the tablecloth that was the checkerboard, red checkerboard? checkerboard. Yeah, That's right. And the, and straw boaters. Right. Yep. Uh, because that was that was very fashionable throughout the culture, right? Like uh, penny farthing bicycles, and th- for some reason the 1920s were very popular in the 1970s. Yeah, isn't that weird? A, yeah, you know it's because also the 50s were popular in the 70s, but the 20s were really a big deal for some reason. So you're and trying pizza- to de- it's like you're trying to deny that Happy Days had an influence in that time period, but it really did. It had a huge influence. Yeah. But there was also this weird, like, an organ grinder with a little monkey running around. Yeah, but actually playing the Star Wars theme because it was a very confusing time. <laughs> yes. But, but I don't understand why, for instance, Shakey's Pizza. Do you remember? Did you have Shakey's Pizza? No, I don't think so. So Shakey's Pizza was a giant chain, at least in the, in the Northwest. I don't know how far Shakey's went. I'm looking at uh, their logo right now. I actually have some drinking glasses from the since 1954. Yeah. But Shakey's was very much, at least at the time, this sort of like, Hey folks, how are you? Kind of, that was their motif, the twenties. So these pipe organs ended up in pizza parlors where the concept was that they would play silent movies in the pizza parlor and these hippie pipe organ enthusiast preservationists would sit at the pipe organ and play along as they had once done in ye olde times, except these were young people and all the whistles and bells. And in a lot of cases they would hook like a, like a bubble machine and a, and a Lionel train set that ran along the ceiling I'm describing one particular pizza and pipes, but I know that this happened more than one place. And so your, your pizza going experience was fully immersive. Mm -hmm. 
you would walk into the pizza parlor and you knew you were going to get some of the finest early, early 20th century brand entertainment along with pizza, which of course in the early 20th century was a total ethnic food that no one that wasn't Italian had ever tried. Right? Like the popularization of pizza didn't happen until the fifties. You wouldn't have gotten a pizza slice yeah. in New York in 1930. Right. Wouldn't, didn't exist. You wouldn't have even had spaghetti because this was like strange food eaten by foreign people. But these pipe organs, like when they tore down the pizza and pipes, where do you think the pipe organ went? That was, that was just a way station on the pipe organs, long, slow march to the garbage dump. (laughs) And so now I challenge you to find a pipe organ. I happen to know of a woman in Portland, Oregon, who is a wealthy person and she on her, uh, enormous property built a theater, custom built it to house a pipe organ that she saved because she is also a pipe organ enthusiast. And so there's this enormous building sort of tucked in the back of her hilltop estate and built by some architect exclusively to house this enormous machine, which because no one she knows plays the pipe organ sits in this strange space unplayed. And then at a certain point, one of the members of Menomina uh, met her on a beach. That Muppet song? No, there was a band called Menomina named after the Muppet oh, song. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, he was like surfing or something and they bumped into each other and she said, I need a caretaker for my property. And he said, okay, sure. And she said, you can live in the pipe organ building. So I think maybe this is 15 years later, he may still be living in the pipe organ building, but I spent many a night there. And every time I said, let's fire up the pipe organ, there was always something that was, somebody was, had to do some maintenance or, you know, there, you'd go back behind it and there would be something dismantled because apparently they're very, I think when they were in their old theaters, they were very sturdy. But then once you relocate them, it's like replanting a palm tree. Now they become very fussy. <laughs> what, what do you know about replanting palm trees? I imagine it's that's very difficult. <laughs> I've I mean, done it and you're right, but I'm just curious how you knew that. Think about a palm tree. It's top heavy. <laughs> yeah, for it is. How do you get that thing to stand up straight once you, once you dig it out? You can't just prop it up with some sticks because it's sometimes, you know, those things are 10 stories tall. Yeah. I heard a story the other day that if you want to buy a palm tree in Los Angeles and have it shipped to the, your front yard and planted that full grown palm trees will cost you $1,000 a foot. Well, they're that expensive, huh? And I'm like, some of these palm trees are, 60 feet high. You're telling me that people pay $60,000 $60, for this thing? That seems unreasonable. And and the re- response was just a, 
a knowing shrug from this unnamed source. Mm. Knowing shrug. Hmm, I don't know. Mm. Thousand bucks a foot. Wow. Word on the street. We would like to thank our sponsor today, Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They achieved this by supporting more sustainable food systems, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. That's me. That's you guys if you sign up for Blue Apron because it really is amazing like that. Generally speaking, I don't really think of myself as somebody who can cook. Like I can make really awesome scrambled eggs. Uh, I can eat rice up in the rice cooker, and that's kind of it. So until I got this Blue Apron stuff, I thought, okay, this is fine for people who like really want to cook and who understand how to cook, but it's just going to be a bunch of ingredients. I'm not going to know what to do with it. This is not the way it is at all. Unlike some of these other services out there, they send you these great instructions that have pictures of the food and what it's going to look like. And unlike these other places, it actually looks, when you're done, even me, it looks like the picture that they sent. And it tastes great. That's the thing. Like You become, I don't want to say a chef, but at least you can cook with this stuff. And they have partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. So their seafood is sourced sustainably, uh, with these standards that were developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, beef, chicken, and pork that comes from responsibly raised animals, and regenerative farming practices for all of their produce. They can deliver to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts. And because they ship exactly the right amount of each ingredient, just what you need for the recipe, there's no food waste. You didn't say, well, I bought three of these and we only used two. No, everything gets used. Cook, cook on your own, cook with your family, cook with your uh, significant other. It's great fun. And you will save money. It's under 10 bucks per person for a delicious meal. They have so many great things are always changing the meals they send. They're always keeping the ingredients fresh. So if you don't want to think about, well, we're going to have this week, we'll have the same old thing we have every week. No more of that. Telling you, no more of that. Less than 10 bucks per meal. This is a great, great service. And most of these things take 30, 40 minutes or less. Step by step, it's easy to do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash roadwork. You're going to love this. Blueapron.com slash roadwork. Three meals free with free shipping. Like there's no downside. Go check it out. Thanks to Blue Apron. Well, I don't, you know, I, when I think about all of this stuff, I'm still reminded of when I first, you know, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, you know, you could, any, anywhere you went, there was going to be great pizza, tons and tons and tons of restaurants that you could go to. And they were all fantastic. And when I moved to Florida, you know, it's not like I expected I was going to get the same kind of pizza. I was young, but I wasn't naive. Right. Right. You'd been around. I've been around. And you know, come to find out that they're really there. The concept of pizza in Florida really was Domino's like Domino's pizza was that was pizza. And I mean, we had pizza unos for the deep dish mm-hmm. pizza, which I had never had. <laughs> that wasn't pizza to me. That was some other thing. You'd never had deep dish pizza. No. Well, you know, you're right. It is a different thing. Uh, then, I mean, it's like an utterly different food. Nothing almost, wrong right? with it. I, I enjoyed the deep dish pizza when I used to eat pizza, but 
I, I always liked the traditional one. And then finally, after years, you know, any time that I would go up north, I would try to stop and have a, a real pizza at some just it didn't matter, you know, just some little mom and pop Italian pizza type place just on some corner. And it would always be outstanding. Uh-huh. And it didn't matter. Philadelphia, New Jersey, they all have really, really great pizza. And of course, I always would fold the pizza. You, you would fold it, of course, because yeah, you you're from Philadelphia. Yeah. And I never realized that was a thing either. And no one I knew would fold it. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you doing? What are you I'm doing? Eating, I'm eating a pizza. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. what, is, what, is, what is what you call you're doing with the fork and the knife? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like this, uh-huh. this is how you eat it. But they finally, they opened up one restaurant in Orlando that was supposed to be, they actually called it like Philadelphia style you know, like Philadelphia style pizza. And I said, okay, well, let's see what this is. It was, it was just, it was just pizza is nothing, nothing close. Philadelphia style pizza. And they have, they have a cheesesteak restaurants here in Austin that they call like authentic Philly cheesesteaks. And they're not, they're so not. We talked yeah. about the Steakums once. I, my, my only, my only comment on that is that no one outside of the Northeast of the United States, and I do not understand why this is true, and you know, Dan, how reluctant I am to compliment the Eastern Seaboard. Oh, yeah. But no one outside of that narrow zone knows how to run a deli or make a freaking sandwich. Yeah. Now, a sandwich... Right? Like you say the word sandwich, everybody has a sandwich. Everybody knows what a sandwich is. Like you got you got the same access to to ingredients for the most part. You got you got bread that's made from wheat and yeast. You got meat that's made from aminals. Kill the aminals, slice them up. (laughs) There's meat. Aminals are full of it. Yeah. That's why they're made out of it almost. They're made out of meat. And wheat, you can buy wheat from, you can, whatever wheat you need. But why is it that as soon as you go 80 miles from New York City, 120 miles, let's say, instantly sandwich technology is lost. Yeah. It's like, it's like prehistoric people trying to make a flashlight out of leaves. And I know there are people right now listening to this program that are like, that's not true. We have sandwiches in St. Louis that are great. Right. We have but great they, sandwiches here, right around the corner. They, you have, I mean, no, oh, you, I can, I can get a great sandwich at the grocery store right there. No. They use boar's head. It's delicious. Yeah, they use boar's head, but they don't know how to use it. No, I know. I'm. I agree with you, and I think there are people who have. They've never had it. So what? Are they, you telling me in? Are you telling me in Austin that you can get? No, there's nothing. Yeah. Nothing like that here. I'm. I'm no. playing the devil's advocate for you. Oh, I see what you're saying. And I'm saying that saying. there. There are people. I was. Vo- I was. I was the voice of the audience there, right. saying, "No, you're wrong." But in fact, if you haven't eaten. A sandwich in the Northeast or pizza in the Northeast or a bagel in the Northeast, you, you have not had those foods. If you no, said, you oh, sure, I have an Einstein bagels uh, breakfast every morning with the, you know, the ham, egg, and cheese. That's, that's my thing. You've never had, you still haven't had a bagel. 
You've no, had no, something no, that visually might resemble it, almost the way a donut resembles a bagel. <laughs> but eating a donut is cl- probably closer to what they give you at the Einstein's than a real bagel. It's bread. It's not a bagel. It's a kind of bread. Yeah. The one, the one exception to the bagel rule is Montreal. Really? Montreal, Montreal has amazing bagels. It's the only place, the only other place that you can get a decent bagel. Now that's not to say that you can get a good bagel sandwich in Montreal, but you can get an amazing point of a bagel sandwich, John. I grew up, listen, I grew up in Philadelphia and then South Florida. And there, I'm not, I don't, as you know, I don't eat gluten anymore, but I, I am fairly passionate about bagels mm-hmm. because this is something that I grew, grew up with. A Jewish family, Philadelphia, then South Florida, and I would go and visit my grandparents in, in Boca, and they lived right by Flakowitz. Oh, Flakowitz. Flakowitz was one of the best... It's still there. It's one of the best places you can get bagels in the United States. Forget Florida as a whole, but in the United States, I'll say. Holds uh-huh. up to anything. And there's, there's, there's certain kinds of bagels that are allowed and certain kinds that aren't allowed. There's no such thing as an everything bagel. that You know, like they did that later. I think Flakowitz probably even did that just to do it, but... You know, I was always a purist, and you could, and they they did a wonderful job of making a good bagel there. And then when I moved to Orlando, same thing. What's here? Where's the bagels at? And there was nowhere, nowhere. Where's Publix. my bagels at? Publix. Let, 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 let me ask you. Well, now, uh, okay, Publix can make a sandwich. It's a gross. It's like a. It's a grocery store. Yeah. And by all rights, should not be able to make a sandwich. And I'm not saying it is a full sandwich. Right. But. A public sandwich is not an embarrassment to no, itself. No, it's fine. But let me ask you, Dan, you said that certain kinds of bagels were not allowed. What happens to disallowed bagels in these places? How does, how People does the culture... People still buy them because they don't know any better. I see. So the culture there does not actually physically disallow the bagel. It's just that they are, the bagels are shunned by some social process. You know, it's the same thing. If you go to a fancy restaurant... And and you show up in like a t-shirt and a pair of flip-flops and some jean shorts with holes in them. They'll, you know, like technically you're wearing a shirt. They probably would let you in. That's how I feel the restaurants are approaching like the everything bagel. I don't know why they do an everything bagel. It's not necessary. You, you, you have a, a few staple bagels, but if you're doing everything, it means you can't make up your mind. And people who want bagels, they want to go in making up their mind. They want to know what they're going to get. Right. And I don't, I never had a bagel sandwich I liked in my whole life because you wind up, what you're going to do with the meat or whatever that's coming through the hole. You can't have anything there. That's just, there's in the hole. So what happens when you get to the middle, then you got no bread on the top and the bottom and you just what take you a bite do? of just the meat. What are you going to do with the meat that comes through the hole? Dan? Right. This is, there are a lot of people that want like sitting on the edge of their chairs now. No, I'm saying you can't do it. Why would you just not use regular bread? You make a rye sandwich or something. Well, because Einstein bagels don't actually have holes in the middle. Oh, they're, they're, they're just... They're basically big buns with, uh-huh. like a, with like an inny belly button on either side. Yeah. They're like doughy buns. But I'm not going to sit... I, we don't want to make this podcast about bagels because no. neither you nor I can actually no. claim to be a bagel expert. Well, no, I could have. I can't anymore. Right. 
And I never could have. I remember the first bagel that came to Seattle. I'm sorry. I don't remember the first bagel that came to Seattle, but I remember the first bagel that came to Anchorage. There was a place called the bagel deli. And when it opened, it was a big deal because Anchorage got new food. It seemed like new kinds of food arrived in Anchorage on a ocean liner periodically. And the event was like Clark Gable arriving in New York city (laughs) on an ocean liner from Paris. Wow. Right. There was like confetti and people waving off the side of the ship. And then the gangplank would go down and someone in a double breasted suit wearing a fedora would walk off the ship and streamers and a brass band starts playing and they hold out a bagel and they're like, look what I have found. And the people of Anchorage rejoice. They say, what is this amazing new food? Can we add it to our existing six kinds of food that we have here? Like we have eggs. Mm -hmm. We have moose burgers. We have, uh, eventually, yes, we did have pizza. Um, what were some of the other foods? Steak, moose steak. But you know, like you get tired of eggs and moose steak. Here came a bagel. And, there, and then a place called the Bagel Deli opened, and there were lines around the block. I remember when I saw the first croissant of my life, when the croissant on the French bakery came to town, again, with the, on the sailing ship. And then they opened a French bakery. As you can imagine, it had mm-hmm. an Eiffel Tower on the sign. It was called Chez Croissant or something. Lines around the block to get these amazing buttery uh, muffins. Or whatever the croissant is. I remember the first time I saw fajitas. Mm-mm. When fajitas arrived in Anchorage, there was a, there was actually a fireworks display because there is nothing more Alaska than fajitas. Right. It appeals to the 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 pre existing love of Mexican food. Oh, that's the other thing that that was already there: uh, moose burgers and eggs. And those giant like garbage can lids covered with cheese and refried beans that pass for Mexican food in, mm. in Northern States, you know, the ones I'm talking I about. I do. Yes, I do. Unfortunately. Like a gar- actually a garbage can lid platter with eight to 85,000 calories of like, just what would you call it? Like lard, the four different constituent parts of lard separated into four portions of the platter. Anchorage already had that. Sounds terrible. But if you bring a platter like that out and it's on fire, that is so Alaskan. (laughs) They're like, why didn't we think of this before? This food comes out from the kitchen and it's basically an assault on everyone in the restaurant. Steam and fucking smoke and burn <laughs> smell fire. Yeah. Woo. The only thing that would make it better is if the, if the waitress fired a gun in the air when she put it on the table. So that was a big event. All these foods. I remember the first time I had Thai food in, in Alaska and the, and the, the thing was the, the Thai food place opened and it was full of the most sophisticated people in Alaska. Like the mayor was there. Wow. Look at this incredible food. It's like Chinese food, but it doesn't even taste like Chinese food. It tastes like 
peanuts and leaves. <laughs> yeah. It was a it was a revolution of the mind. Yeah. Now here we are, you know, 30 years later, I'm sure in Anchorage you could get you could get a bibimbap. You could get uh bibimbap, you mean? Bibimbap. Yeah. Bibimbap. Yeah, I mean it's, you know, I sort of I I learned most of my things by reading, right? So I don't know how things are pronounced. Also, I noticed earlier in the program you said orange. 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 Orange, Florida. mirror, down there, water. Florida, Florida oranges. Yeah. Oh, I, I know that this is a reoccurring. Uh, you like it topic. when I do it, though. Or, yeah, or very, what do you say? Orange? Orange. Yeah, orange. 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 It's very, it's very interesting. To, you know, regional dialects, very interesting to me. Oh, yeah. I just remembered something. I wanted to make sure I asked you this because um, I'm, I need to go to a pawn shop. I wanted some advice. Oh, yeah. Lay it uh, on me. My uh, eight-year-old son about a year ago found a gold chain necklace. Uh-huh. How big? Uh, how big is the, how, how big around is the gold part? Mm. A little, is it a little tiny or is no, it No, like- it's not like a, it's a man's, it's a, definitely a man's necklace this is not something i think a woman a woman would wear i don't think it's i don't i don't know enough to say this is something that you know if it has a lot of value or anything like that does it read as bling uh it i think this is something like when i imagine who would wear this i'm thinking of a of a a a guy with dark dark hair nice Uh, tan maybe a little bit of hair just a tuft in the upper chest uh-huh, uh-huh. and he's got a v-neck on and then this chain on uh-huh, uh-huh. and he might wear mirrored sunglasses in like a non-ironic way i see what you're saying okay that's how i imagine the chain but it's just it seems like it's a, a single piece it wouldn't be layered on like mr t style with lots and lots of them right uh, you know and it's de- it's not something that like a a young woman would wear a locket on either Right. This is a signature piece that the that the owner wears uh, by way of saying like, "Hello, yeah, I'm here." Yeah, yeah. I, I think had a, back to I the pizza a, thing. I could see the guy who owns the pizza shop. He could wear one of these. I don't know if I could pull this look off if I wore it. I would try, but he doesn't want me to borrow it. There was a there was a guy on my ski hill growing up. He was the father of a friend of mine. He was a rich guy. He had a Porsche 944 and he wore a woman's fur coat when he skied. Uh, it wasn't a woman's obviously it was made for him. He was a big man, Yeah, but it was, it was in a style that could only be described at the time as a woman's fur coat because we had fur coats in, uh, uh we had a prodigious number of fur coats in Alaska. It That's was a, cool. it was an acceptable, uh, thing for people to wear, but like it was fur very lined clear or fur on the, the outside. No, as well. no, like a giant fur coat, wow. like a, like a Hagrid coat from uh, Harry Potter. I'm not, I've never seen a Harry Potter movie, so I don't know, but big, big fur coats with fur collars and hoods. Um, I have a, I have a couple of coats that are, that have fur accents even still, but like big fur, like a wolf coat. I mean, if you were in a wolf coat in Alaska, that really sends a message when you walk into the, Thai food restaurant. But this guy was wearing a coat. It was his signature thing. And it, 
really communicated this thing that you're talking about, like the one kind of thick gold chain that would be very appropriate if you're wearing a fur coat that is cut like a woman's short weight, short waisted with a big, big collar. It was a, it was, it was truly like a, uh, it was an been? Oh, mid eighties, all these things that I'm describing happened in the mid eighties. Anyway, so your son found this, this signature piece. Have you looked at it with a magnifying glass? No. Is that something I should do? Well, so if it's gold, you want to think that somewhere on it, there's a little, there is thing that's like 24 K or, or 14 K or whatever it is. I think 14 is going to be the most. Cause it's you know, softer as it gets higher number. Yeah. 24 harder. carat thing. It would just be, uh, it would it'd be too malleable. So this is probably four, 14, maybe 12. If it's nice, it's 14. Okay. But I would think somewhere like either maybe, maybe on the clasp depending, but somewhere it should have some marks, right? Like, Maybe a little goldsmith mark, maybe the maker mark, that or assayer or whatever, and then fourteen carat. Uh, you presumably, but I'm not sure about that. But that would be something. That would, first thing I would do is go over it with a magnifying glass and see if you can find some data. Okay, so once I've done that, yeah, he he got this idea that he's always he's always trying to find because we don't give him an allowance or anything. Mm-hmm. And anytime he asks me for something, I say, no, it doesn't matter what it is. I say, no, you say, go out and see if you can find some pirate treasure. Well, he did. He went out and he found this thing and he brought it back and he had it. And I guess he was planning to keep it until he somehow, I don't know how, Oh, here's what we want to do. He said, dad, I want to, I want to sell this. Oh yeah. And I said, Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure you could, you know, if get something for it at a pawn shop. And wow. he's like, I don't want to go to a pawn shop. He's like, I don't know what that means or what that is. I want to sell it on eBay. I said, we're not selling it on eBay yeah. uh, because we have bought a few Futurama toys for him from eBay. So he knows what that is. Uh-huh. He said, no, I, I don't want to go to pawn shop. I want to do it on eBay. I said, we're not doing that on eBay. He said, well, what's a pawn shop? And I described the concept to him and he got it. But, you know, it's not like, like I go to pawn shops a lot. I've been to some, but it was a long time ago. So I wanted to understand, maybe you could advise me on sort of like what, like do you, do you with a piece like this? I'm not sure it's very valuable. I think it's probably even if it is twelve, fourteen, whatever. I I doubt I doubt they're going to give me much for it, right? Do I try to haggle with them? Can you bring an, a child under eighteen into a pawn shop with you? Do I need to pack some heat in there? Like what's the you know walk walk me through this? Well, I think in any um. In any situation like this, you're going to want to have as much information about the thing you're taking in as you can. Because if you just walk in there with some gold bangle yeah. and you're like, I want all the money for this. Yeah, that's what I was going to do. Yeah, the the pawn operator is going to uh, think that that's very funny. And they are going to give you either nothing or they're going to, you know, they're going to tell you that it's worth nothing or whatever they're going to do is, is not going to give you the most efficacious deal. Sure. Now the way up, the way a pawn shop works is what well, the business they're in is you get behind on your bills 
or you need some money because somebody comes up to you and says, they've got a really great real estate deal, but you need to get into it today. <laughs> right. Or some other situation where you are a person and you need cash fast. And if you are a person who needs cash fast, there's already a problem, right? If you're, if you're doing good and you're a normal person, you generally don't need cash fast unless it's a medical emergency. Like that's one of the, that's one of the situations where it's like, oh my God, I've got a medical emergency right. and I didn't plan for it and that's reasonable and now I need cash fast. And so you look around your house and you say, what do I have that's worth money? Well, I have this guitar, I have this laptop, I have this, you know, these are things that have, uh, that are like valuable and their value can be determined easily. My friend once Not, went, it took, he took like his, uh, 12 speed, uh, bike yeah. and he took that in and he, he, but he didn't full on sell it. He sort of had it there. They gave him some money and then he had to go back and I guess to get it back. Was that right. out of hawk or something? Is that the term of thinking? Yeah, that's right. So that is, so you hawk the thing, right? You, you take it to them and you say, listen, this 12 speed bike is worth $1,500. I paid $2,200 for it two years ago. I can sell it for $1,500. All I'm asking for is $750 because I need $750 because of a medical emergency or because somebody is, wants me to go in on an acre of land in the Everglades. And the pawn guy looks at it and he says, here's what the pawn guy's thinking. This guy is probably not going to come back. Right. Because most of the people that pawn things either use this as a source of ready cash. So there are people that take their Gibson Les Paul in and they pawn it. And at the end of the period of pawn, they get the money together and they go back in and they get it out of hock. And then they're cool for a couple of months and then they put it back in pawn. And I've, uh, there, there are guitars that have been in and out of pawn 50 times. Yeah. Because for whatever reason, that becomes part of this person's banking. You know, it's effectively like they're, they're, this person is their loan officer. But in most cases, you pawn something and then, you know, if you couldn't put your hands on $750 now, why would you think you could put, seven, you know, your hands on $750 later? So the thing goes into Hawk and it sits there for a long time. And then when the period is expired, the pawn, the pawner, the pawn man brings it out from the back room and puts a price tag on it. So he's looking at your 12 speed bike and he's saying, well, maybe it's worth $1,500, but what's it worth to me? You're asking for $750. i am going to try and give you 500 for it because that, you know, I'm trying to make a profit and it's going to be somewhere you know, can I get 1200 or 1500 for it? No, nobody who wants that bike is coming into a pawn shop. So I'm going to, it's an opportunistic sell for yeah. me. I'm going to try and get as much money as I can. So if you have a legitimate gold chain, that's 14 karat gold and it weighs, let's say conservatively, it weighs a pound. That's not conservative, right? It's not going to weigh a pound. If you take it into a pawn shop, the best you're going to do is get slightly less than half of the value of the gold. 
maybe if because oh pawn shops operate two ways you can go in and say i don't want to pawn this i just want to sell it and you know and that's the like the tv show pawn stars stars, yeah where you go in there and then you say this is this ancient thing there's only one of it in, in, in the whole world left and they look at it and they say actually you can get these still at the drugstore and it's not even worth eight bucks and they're like it's worth eight thousand dollars and somehow they meet in the middle right Right. Or don't, but, you know, but the only, the only place in the world that that happens in pawn shops is Las Vegas because Las Vegas is the only place that a, somebody has a leather jacket signed by Elvis B somebody has a leather jacket fake signed by Elvis, mm-hmm. but they believe it was signed by Elvis. Right. And C they need money fast because they have, this is the thing that never that never gets talked about on Pawn Stars, which is who are all these people that have these amazing things and why are they selling them at a pawn shop in Las Vegas? Oh, because they just lost their ass right. at the roulette table. And this is what they've got, you know, and all that these guys that saunter in, they're like, yeah, I've got this, you know, I've got this Porsche 356 S, but I'm just looking to get rid of it, looking to see what I can get for it like no you're not <laughs> you're pawning your dad's car because you're up to your ears to some casino and there's a guy waiting in a car outside who's going to beat your ass but no most pawn shops the reason you when you walk into a pawn shop and i guarantee this will be true in texas you're going to walk in the first thing you're going to see is a bunch of power tools makitas hmm. and you know saws and drills because this is the stuff. This is the stuff that's worth money that people who are, who are living close to the edge have to sell. Yeah. You know, they they sell their tools, which is a tragedy. And there's, I usually, I remember as a kid going in, I'd see guitars, tools, guns, knives. Yeah. And that's about, that's about all all I remember. I actually, I, I pawned, I pawned a ring once. Hmm. Did you ever get it back? Nah. Right. So you should have said, I'm just trying to sell it. Maybe you'll get 10% more if you're selling it. Yeah. But yeah, so you, so, and it used to be, you'd go into pawn shops and see interesting things. There'd be cool guitars in there because there were a lot more cool guitars Mm -hmm. and somebody would actually have a cool guitar. They'd take into a pawn shop because you could buy cool guitars for $500. And if they got $200 for it, like I, there were there were a couple of guitars that I regret not buying at a pawn shop. One of them was a Gibson guitar that was that was laser cut in the shape of the United States of America. I think you told me about that. And I and it still devastates me that I didn't buy this guitar. A friend of mine bought it and gave it as a gift to another friend. And it was affordable. I could own that guitar to this day. There were, you know, at the time I thought, "Oh, I'll see a million of those in my life." But in fact, no. That was my one shot. And the other one was a beautiful 1980-81 Gibson Les Paul Special. And they only made them for, the only, I, the only ones I've ever seen were this, this year, which was a fully, you know, Les Paul with full binding and everything. It wasn't like a Les Paul Junior or some junior model that had cheap paint on it. It was like a full Les Paul, but it had P90s. Mm. And it was this gorgeous thing and it was $350 or $400. And, uh, 
And I was like, huh, that's cool. And then I waltzed out of there oh. and a day, a day or two later, I was like, wait a minute. That was that guitar. That was the one. And I ran back to the pawn shop and my friend, Jeremy Kepping had bought it. And so immediately I started like, you know, shadowing Jeremy saying, you got to sell me that guitar. Yeah. I made a terrible mistake. I saw it first. He was like, I don't have to sell you this guitar. Go screw yourself. And that's still, that's still the condition on the ground today, Dan. Really? 15 years later, he still has it. He doesn't have to sell it to me. Go screw myself. <laughs> that's the world I'm living in. Oh my God. How do you, how do you deal with this? Well, it's hard. I mean, you can hear the pain in my voice. Yeah, okay. But anyway, so pawn shops are interesting, interesting, interesting social places. So I what recommend. do I expect when I go in there? Can I bring him in? Is it like 18 and, and under? Is there like a, they're going to buzz me in through the, you know, the, mm. the bars or what? No, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think they're going to buzz you in through the bars. Uh, and I think you can bring your kid in there that he can't make the deal. I would love but, for him to make the deal. That'd be, I awesome. mean, he can, he can stand there and you guys can go over and stand in the corner and whisper. Mm-hmm. Cause the, cause the first thing the pawn shop guy is going to say is no, nah, that's not worth anything. And maybe he'll be like, yeah, 20 bucks. And then you guys can go confer mm-hmm. and then come back and say, listen, we looked at this under a magnifying glass and it says Avon right on it. Mm-hmm. We want 11 D $12 for it. And the guy's going to go, huh? You know, Avon is a perfume company. Yeah. And eleven to 12 isn't a real number. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will be, it'd be a learning experience for your son. I really think everybody should go into pawn shops and look around. And, uh, there's nothing a guy at a pawn shop likes better than a guy, uh, than somebody else, man or woman who's never been in a pawn shop just standing there looking at things under the glass and saying, can I touch that? Is that a real gun? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, that scene in the blues brothers where the, the good old blues brothers band goes into Ray Charles's pawn shop. I do remember that. Yeah. And they, they buy all their equipment from him. Is that what I should be expecting? That is the good old time, old fashioned big city pawn shop. Okay. Where you walk in and you're like, Oh look, there's a fender Rhodes. Hey man, the action in this is all worn out. Uh-huh. And then the, then the blind pawn shop guy says, there's nothing wrong with the action of that piano. And he comes out and goes, what about the boogaloo? Dink, dink, dink. You know, like that's what used to happen. Yeah. Now it's just, it's just like how much for this Makita. And if you're looking for a Makita, like that's your place. Oh, the other thing, of course, with pawn shops is that they, the people come in and try and pawn things that they stole. Well, and that was the other thing that I was thinking about because I know I know for a fact that he didn't steal it. He found it. I was there at the time, so I'm that's that, good. That's fine. Well, do you think there's a chance that they'll say, "Well, is this where'd you find it?" He, you know, I'm gonna. Uh, what, what's an eight year old boy doing with this? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So what what are they gonna do? Are they are they the kind of place that like that's fine there? They don't care that no questions asked. It's clearly not. It's not like I'm going in there with this, some kind of diamond. It's just some crappy gold chain. Well, look, even if you went in there with a, with some kind of diamond, even if you went in there with a giant diamond, um, pawn shop employees generally are not moralists. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're not counting on. Yeah. They're not working at a pawn shop because they have this like super developed moral sense and they want to write injustice. Yeah. 
um, they're working at a pawn shop to buy and sell things that come in off the street. And it's a, it's in the shadow lands a little bit, you know, it's like a check cashing place. It's, it, it's a, it's a legitimate business that makes transactions in the border country between the, between the straight world and the, and the, uh, the slightly, um, out of true world. So the pawn shop guy does care if the thing is stolen because the police routinely come to the pawn shop and they say, prove that everything in here isn't stolen. Yeah. And so they have a whole methodology of like, is this stolen? And the way that they do that is, does this have any kind of identifying marks on it? Like a serial number. Um, and then they hold things to, they hold things for a certain amount of time. Okay. The state requires that a pawn shop not take something in and then sell it the same day. They have to hold it against the possibility that someone will call the pawn shop and say, my car was broken into and they stole my big gold chain. (laughs) At which point the pawn shop has to go, all right, can you describe the chain? And you say, well, it's kind of like the chain that a sort of guy, some hair is sticking out of the front of his shirt. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that. And the pawn shop guy goes, well, can you do any better than that? I've got a lot of things here that meet that description. And I think if you get close enough to describing the thing or you, you know, or you can say like, I laser etched my name on it. You know, they have to say, okay, um, yeah, we have your thing. And so, and I think if they take in something that's stolen and they didn't do their due diligence on it, that they have to eat it and they don't want to eat it. So they make sure-ish that that the thing's not stolen. But that's not, they're not going to wait to pay you. That's on them. If it, it turns out to be stolen, that was their bad. Right. Which is why they oftentimes say, nah, I'm not going to buy that. Thanks for coming Mm -hmm. in. Mm Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a lot of stuff that walks in the pawn shop door that also walks out mm-hmm. on the same day. Um, either because the pawn shop guy says it's not worth anything or it's not worth it to me. Yeah. That thing is worth something, but it's not worth it to me. Like maybe that leather jacket is signed by Elvis, but you hear this on pawn stars all the time. Like the number of people who want this thing is very small. And do I have access to those people? Like the Pawn Stars guys probably do, but mm-hmm. does the guy in does the guy at the the Austin pawn shop have access to the entire market for signed Elvis jacket? No. Now something made out of gold, there there doesn't need to be a market for it exactly because there's always a market for gold. Just the just the weight value of it. So if it's solid gold or some, you know, if it's some amount of like identifiable gold, they'll buy it because it's gold. It's, it's basically currency. Gold is currency. Right. Because then, then anything could be done. It could be melted down. It could be mm-hmm. put someone, you know, they need to fill a tooth, whatever. Sure. You go, you go right to your dealer. Yeah. And say, I want a big bag of drugs. 
for this. And the dealer is going to say, I'll give you a medium bag of drugs for that. (laughs) And you say, are you kidding me? This thing's worth $1,500. And the dealer says, today, it's worth $600 in drugs. Because fuck you, you want drugs. And this gold is just enough of a pain in my neck that I'm going to rake you over the coals for it. Because I'm a drug dealer. 